Happy Saturday. It's March 11th, 2023. And there is a God because you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your editors here at Airmail who like to eat rhubarb, among other things. Rhubarb? Who knew? Who knew rhubarb had such a, I don't know, crazy, mysterious path to our table, right? Yeah, well, Spike Carter did. I mean, he's one of our writers here at Airmail. And we should preface this by saying we have a very heavy podcast this week. We're going to talk about murder. We're going to talk about drugs. But we are also going to talk about rhubarb. And we're going to start with that because it's a wonderful topic. And we have a lot to say about it. Michael, the rhubarb situation here in London is next level. And Spike captures it beautifully in his story this week about... It sounds absurd when you say it, forced rhubarb. But the fact is that this is a particular method of growing rhubarb that makes it incredibly sweet and tangy and delicious. And it belongs on everyone's plate this time I of just year. love that... You- You have now uttered the phrase, the rhubarb game here in London is next level. That's perfect. I could spend this entire podcast talking about three memorable rhubarb dishes I've had recently. The first was at the River Cafe and Spike writes about this. They do their panna cotta, which is the stuff of legend. And then they do it with this sort of pickled rhubarb a cote and a little bit of rhubarb juice. And I can't even talk about it. It's so delicious. And then my friend Sky McAlpine, who writes cookbooks and is a food columnist for the Times of London, does a rhubarb tart, Michael, that will just knock your socks off. So if you want it, just Google Sky McAlpine rhubarb tart. You can make it at home. And it is a crowd pleaser if ever one existed. Existed. Anyway, I should stop now. I'm sorry. Okay, you had me at rhubarb tart, but let's move on to, as you say, we do have a great show for you today. We've got one of our favorite guests, the always witty and droll movie director, Paul Feig, who's going to stop by to tell us about something that's annoying him, really annoying him, and that you yourself might be guilty of. Can you guess what it is? I'll leave you with that thought. Then Eric Wilson's going to join us from Hong Kong with the story of the shocking and sensational murder of a top fashion model. And finally, Lyndall Hobbs is going to discuss her powerful story in this week's issue about what it's like to see your daughter in the grip of a drug that kills one American every seven minutes. So it's a terrific issue and it's going to be a terrific show. Ashley, where would you like to begin? No shortage of drama this week, Michael. I mean, shall we start with Paul? He's not only one of our favorite gentlemen in the world, but he's also a wonderful writer and a Hollywood director. He's known for Freaks and Geeks. He's also, it was just announced this week, I don't know if you saw it, he is remaking my favorite show, Motherland which I'm so excited about, Paul. I cannot wait to talk to you about this too. And he was the director of Bridesmaids. He created Freaks and Geeks. I mean, if that's not enough for you, ladies and gentlemen, then we don't know what is. Welcome, Paul Feig. Well, Paul, it's a delight to have you here today. Thank you, sir. You're shooting your new film. Is it called... Grand Death Lotto, or does it have a different name now? No, it is called Grand Death Lotto. So you can tell it's going to be an Oscar winner, clearly. (laughs) But it's actually insanely fun. So I just want to make fun movies, Michael. I just want to make people laugh. That's all I want, sir. And make them feel. As you do, because it's got Aquafina and... John Cena and also Simu Liu and some other fabulous people we haven't even announced yet. So there you go. Okay, so let's flash forward to... You're here to tell us about a scourge that has sort of reawakened in our land. And in some ways, it could impact the enjoyment of this film when it comes out in the next 12 months. So tell us what this scourge is and why it's driving you crazy. (laughs) Just to preface all this... I have a thing called misophonia, which means that like certain noises just make me crazy. The sound of somebody biting into an apple makes me nuts. People chewing on really crunchy stuff is not great for my (laughs) blood pressure. But I've always had this thing about coughing, which is, look, we all have to cough at certain times. I just got over a cold and I was kind of, it comes up on you and there's that tickle in your throat and you're like, oh my God. But I always fight to not cough because I know 
how annoying coughing can be in certain situations. If you're at home, cough all you want. If you're walking down the street, whatever. But if you're in a theater or just in a place where there are people, I always feel like people just let it rip no matter what versus a sneeze. Now, a sneeze, I mean, there are loud sneezers and some people that sneeze and you're like, you really don't have to sneeze that loud, do you? Like, ha-choo! But at the same time, like, you don't kind of, if somebody else sneezes, you don't suddenly go like, oh, I feel like I would like to sneeze too. It's like a sneeze is either going to happen or it's not going to happen. But a cough is a kind of thing of like, you kind of go, oh, there's something in my, oh, <laughs> I'll do it. You can control it. And the reason I say you can control it is because when COVID came into our lives, the coughing was suddenly the worst thing you could do in public because it just said, oh, I've got it and I'm going to give it to you and everybody around me. So we all became really good at not coughing, which proved my point, which is you can control your coughing. (laughs) And what I've noticed now is now that the pandemic is still with us, but it's ebbing off. It's not as insanely terrible as it was. People are coughing again. And you've lost that thing of like, oh, if I cough in public, everybody's going to look at me and it's going to be shame. And now just kind of like people are just kind of letting it rip. And I think the only positive thing is like, oh, good, we're moving past the pandemic and now people feel comfortable enough. But at the same time, now there's just a lot of coughing that doesn't need to happen. I'm entirely on board with this 100%. I think that people are, I think they're lazy. I think they're lazy. And they just, uh, uh, they cough. And then I want to say, just want attention or what is that? Yeah. Well, no, you'd be like in a theater and watching a show and it's fine. And then one person coughs and then there's a spate of coughing. So clearly either people go like, oh, I wanted to cough, but I didn't think I could. Now they did. Or you just kind of, it's like a yawn, I guess. You're like, oh, they did it. It just plants it in your head of like, oh, maybe I need to cough. I had a thing happen where like in the pandemic, we had the kind of this, we had a few people over for a friend of ours who was turning 90. <laughs> She's the youngest person I know. She's awesome. And all her friends are old too. And so they, we had this little get together, safe get together in our house. But at one point I went over to a group to talk and I was had a drink and I took a drink and it went down the wrong way. And I, thought I was going to die because I was like, I can't cough because they're all 90 years old. They're going to think I'm rife with the virus. So I'm literally like turning red, like mm, 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 that. But I go like, if I could get through that without a coughing jag, then you clearly, if you're in a very intense, quiet theater or movie experience or restaurant, you can navigate it if you don't have a cold. You want to say like, listen, I mean, it's you just not to be dramatic, but it's just like if you're hiding in the cellar, maybe you learn to swallow it a little bit. I always thought if somebody put a gun to my head and said and sat me at a piano and said, you have to play Beethoven's fifth. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. Would I somehow magically be able to play Beethoven's fifth like a mother can lift a car off of a trapped child? Like maybe it would happen. Clearly, I'd be dead. But I do agree. Like there are situations you go like, look, if I can't cough, I'm not going to do it. If it's clearly that's a life or death situation you brought up. But if it's just going to ruin the enjoyment of people around me, maybe that's a reason to try to contain yourself. Okay. So you brought up the phrase gun to the head. One of my favorite sports radio sort of like gun to the head, Paul, (laughs) you got to pick the Padres or the Dodgers. Who do you pick? (laughs) Here, gun to the head. You're in a theater, you're enjoying a live performance and you start to hear... Some little old lady down the row, you know, it follows quickly on the heels of that, right? The crinkly cellophane wrapper. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. As she starts to look for her peppermint or her little butterscotch to suck on. So what is worse, gun to the head, the coughing 
or <laughs> the slow motion methodical unwrapping, which seems to take 42 days? They're both annoying in their own way, but I'm, I am going to answer your question. I'm not going to be a politician on this. If I had to pick one, I'd take the crinkling of the wrapper because at least I know someone is trying to solve the issue for the rest of the show. And if I could, I would like, I'd just like to reach over and like do it for them really quickly because people don't realize if you do it really fast, it's one second that's annoying versus two minutes that's excruciating. Right. It's ripping the bandage off in an audio way. Exactly. Tear that open. <laughs> All and little old people. That's my advice to you. Said the man with misthemia. <laughs> Mr. Mistophonia. <laughs> Mr. Mistophonia is like, that's his motto. <laughs> you should be able to buy that on 70s TV. Hey, it's a Mr. Mistophonia. Paul, you do end your column this week. And on a hopeful note, you're actually, for all your cantrankerousness, as we might call you, you actually feel it's a return to good times again, right? It is. It is. It's nice. Like all the things that pre-pandemic, you're like, oh, that's annoying, blah, blah, blah. Like you started to miss because it meant that life was normal and people were just kind of living their lives without this Damocles, sort of Damocles hanging over their head. So yeah, I do think there is something, even though I still go like, oh God, they're coughing. I go like, oh, but it's so nice. At least you don't feel like the government's going to pull up and throw you in the back of a truck and take you out to some (laughs) private area where they're going to lock you away. Although they may still do that for other things, as we can see the way things are going. Paul, it's always a delight. We know you're busy shooting the film. When will it be finished? We will finish shooting this at the end of April. Then it'll be coming out, we don't know, but probably the beginning of next year, possibly the end of this year. We do not know. As always, I wish again we could have the video on because you would see Paul, as I've always maintained, is not just the hardest working and the funniest man in show business, but the best dressed. The best dressed man in show business. Well, go on, Michael. We're going to do our own little, since it is red carpet weekend here, we're going to do our own little airmail Red carpet. What are you wearing today, Paul? Well, thank you, Michael. Am I on the 360 cam right now? Let me show my nails. I'm wearing an Anderson and Shepard bespoke suit. One of my older ones, I have to say. I actually noticed today that it's getting a little threadbare in certain places. But it is a gray three-piece, classic British styling with a lovely purple tie. And my boutonnieres, I always wear a boutonniere from Charvet. I've got about 100 of them in different colors. They're silk and little flowers. And a lovely pocket square from Tom Ford. And I was wearing Lucchese boots today, actually. I have a weird thing about, I like cowboy boots and western boots. I hate shoelaces, Michael. It's my other weird thing. Wow. So, God help you if you're coughing and you have shoelaces. Because <laughs> Just get out of my sight. Just get <laughs> Unwrap a lozenge really fast and beat it. That's all I ask. And your shirt? Oh, shirt is from Anto of Beverly Hills. I have them custom made, not because I'm fancy, but because my shoulders are so sloping that any store-bought shirt just looked like an accordion in the front. So I have to get these really sad shirts Made. Perfect. So we've got our red carpet moment for the weekend. And whatever you do as you're watching the Oscars at home, feel free to cough. But <laughs> in the privacy of your own home, do whatever you want, my friend. Exactly. <laughs> Paul, thank you as always for being here and bringing us so much joy and laughs. And good luck with the film. And we hope to see you soon. Thank you, Michael. I always love seeing you. I've known you for a long time. And it's always a delight. Great. Thanks, buddy. God, I love him. I hope I never cough around him. Now I'm getting worried, Michael. He's giving me a complex. No, I know. As I said to him, I'm sitting there thinking, like, we come out of that segment, and now I'm like, I want to clear my throat. I don't want to do that. And it's just as you're back to like, please don't let me cough. I'm going to be that person. I'm going to be that guy. So I have plenty of water within arm's reach right now. 
I have a bottle on my desk. All right. Well, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to go over to Hong Kong where Eric Wilson has a fascinating story. What? I mean, God, it sounds so salacious even I say it. How did one of Hong Kong's rising models and influencers end up in a kill house outside of the city? A purple Birkin bag, a black raincoat, a 28-year-old top model. These are the details that have gripped Hong Kong in the past two weeks as the story of Abby Choi has come to light. We have Eric Wilson here to tell us all about what happened. He is the former editorial director of Tatler in Asia and a longtime reporter at the New York Times on the Styles desk and a friend of ours. And we're happy to have him here. Welcome, Eric Wilson. Thank you. Glad to be here. So first of all, who was Abby Choi? Well, Abby Choi was a young model and influencer, like many young women here in Hong Kong, has kind of someone who's become really engaged and fascinated with the world of luxury and fashion. And she was starting out her career as an influencer, basically trying to build an online persona, living the kind of glamorous life of a person who goes to major fashion events and parties, someone who's always invited and knows all the designers, someone who wears these amazing jewelry and has an incredible collection of gowns and handbags and just is constantly living this glamorous life, not only in Hong Kong, but around the world and sharing that on social media. And then on February 21st, she was reported missing. Tell us what happened from there. What we know, I mean, the case is still developing and it seems to be changing almost every day. But what we know so far is that she was picked up by her brother-in-law, who also worked as her chauffeur. He was a close, remained a close friend even after the, her divorce from her first husband several years ago. She was picked up at her home in the Kowloon section of, of Hong Kong in this very glamorous neighborhood called Kadori Hill to pick up her daughter with her first husband and somehow on the way there, she disappeared. She never picked up her child. And what the police have said is that somewhere along the way, her ex-husband boarded the vehicle and she was taken to a, what is called a kill house, basically, where her former in-laws are accused of having murdered her in a very vicious and incredibly salacious way. And before we get into the details of that, because it's so gory, tell us about the apartment at the center of this. So what the police have said is that in 2019, Abby had purchased an apartment for her former in-laws at a price of about nine million U.S. dollars, which is obviously very extravagant. But here in Hong Kong, where real estate is incredibly expensive, that is considered a very high end luxury apartment, but not that unusual. But she purchased this apartment in her former father-in-law's name, and apparently they're in recent months, there have been a dispute about what to do with this apartment because, and it's not clear which person kind of initiated this, but apparently there were discussions about selling the apartment. And that's where the dispute is really at this point centered. There were accusations that the former in-laws wanted to take all this money, but there were also questions about really how it came to be in the father-in-law's name, where the money came from originally, how, like, who, who in which side of which family, whether her former in-laws or those of her current partner, as well as her own family's finances, played into all of this. So the police and prosecutors are unraveling all of this right now. There's an incredible amount of speculation happening here, not only in Hong Kong, but in mainland China, all of the social media channels, Doyen, on radio programs and television news channels, people are just constantly discussing what happened here and trying to understand where was the dispute and what would drive a family to take such a violent action to try to obtain this property and all the funds associated with it. All right. We like to think that morning meeting is a family show. Not today. If you have a weak stomach or if you have children in the car, turn it off now because Eric, I want you to take us to the scene of this kill house. You've been out to this neighborhood. Tell us a little bit about the setting for this horrible crime and what happened inside. I will say, having looked at this for the last two weeks, it really 
really is, is appalling in what happened and it's quite difficult to keep looking at it and talking about it. But what the police found in this very small village in the northernmost section of the city, in an area that's typically used by wealthy Hong Kongers for their recreation pursuits, there's a very picturesque area of Hong Kong, right by a beautiful mountain range. Um, there's a nice artificial beach there, an area where people can rent paddle boats in the shape of rubber ducks and do really beautiful pictures on the water. In this very small village house, they found some, not all, of Abby's remains. When they got into this house and they, and they followed the GPS of the vehicle and surveillance cameras, what they discovered was that she had been dismembered very graphically. Her legs were found in a refrigerator, her skull and several ribs were found in a soup pot and had been cooked into a soup. And they still don't know where her torso and hands are, so they're constantly searching. The house had also also been rented specifically for this purpose, they believe, because there was really no furniture besides a couch and a table. And they found an electric saw, they found a meat grinder, they found sailing tarps covering the walls and aprons and face masks, presuming that the perpetrators were planning to dispose of the body and leave no traces behind. They also found blood spatters in the vehicle that was found nearby, and they suspect that she was attacked in the car. They discovered a, a large hole in the back of her skull that suggested she'd been violently bludgeoned to death. As you report in your story, Hong Kong is one of the safest cities in the world, and this has really roiled its 7 million residents. Tell us about this particular style of crime. Is this common, uncommon? Why is this as shocking as it is, I guess? Hong Kong has an incredibly low murder rate, about 30 per year in a city of more than 7 million people. And generally, the crimes here are very rare, but when they happen there, they're pretty spectacular. And for some reason, there's been a long history of murders that involve dismemberment. And that, that may have to do with the kind of compression of people here, the density of the population, a scarcity of real estate that even, it's morbid to say, but the perpetrators may have been looking for ways to dispose of the bodies without leaving traces behind. Even in, in a city with a history of very strange murders, the most famous being the 1999 Hello Kitty murder in which three mobsters kidnapped a nightclub hostess, held her hostage for a month, and then dismembered her body, placing her head inside of a oversized Hello Kitty doll. All of that pales in comparison to what we're seeing this week and then over the last two weeks, because there just keeps to be more and more coming in this case. And things that are just really stunning that any human being could take such an incredible action, let alone a family of people being involved in this. It's, it's just stunning. Now, Eric, you and Abby run in similar circles in the fashion universe in Hong Kong, and you knew several people in common, and you talk about that in your story. How was she regarded? What was she like as a person? From what everybody's been talking about, she was very well-liked. She was very dedicated to her goal of becoming a style icon, as she even said on her own Instagram. But beyond that, she kept a pretty low profile within the fashion world. I think she was really, people were just going to know her. One of the strange things about the pandemic has been that because Hong Kong isolated itself, Hong Kong created its own celebrities, including like a famous boy band here that has never been heard of before. But that desire to have celebrities influence evolving here, the need of the luxury brands to have people promoting their products, it kind of created this vacuum where people were able to build personas online during those three years that Hong Kong was practically effectively closing its borders. So people really liked 
people like Abby who were enthusiastic about fashion, who were respectful to the brands and posted this great content. She was also a mother of four. So and only 28 years old, which she's had like an unusual life. So she wasn't like someone who was out on the scene constantly. The one time I remember seeing her vividly was in Beijing in 2019 for a Valentino fashion show and dinner. And she was wearing a beautiful gown with a chinchilla jacket. And what struck me and why I remember it so clearly was fur coats are kind of passe. And I always thought, well, look, here's this young woman, beautiful, chasing after the Korean celebrities who were in the crowd to get selfies with them, wearing what appeared to be her mother's fur coat. And now that we're all kind of pouring through all the social media feeds of not only herself, but her mother, you see those pieces actually in the closets that they, when they show their inside their closets, and you really get the sense of kind of a person who was navigating a world that is hard to really crack into, but, but somehow managing to do that over the last five years and figuring it out and making a way, finding a path to getting to all those designers. And it showed somebody who was like really ambitious and resourceful and also had the means to be able to get to those places and finance a lifestyle that was that a lot of young women dream about. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your thoughts and amazing story. And I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this more in the coming weeks. We're just starting to crack the surface of what happened here. I think it's far more complicated and even probably much worse than we realize. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Sure. Thanks. What a story. You can almost already see the film version of this story as it plays out. It's grim beyond grim. And it's just sort of like one of those ones that falls in that weird world of money and sex and fashion. And I'm sure the wheels are turning at Netflix and other places right now. But let's hope that obviously justice is served here most of all. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, we have a very gripping essay in the issue this week by Lindahl. Hobbs is a former journalist in Los Angeles, as well as being a writer and director. And she's also the author of a memoir called A Girl from Oz, which is wonderful as well. And she's here to tell us all about the saga of her daughter and her daughter's addiction to fentanyl. Welcome, Lindahl. Thanks, Ashley and Michael. Great to be here. You write so powerfully about not only what your daughter has gone through, but what it's been like for you to witness her difficulties as she has struggled with her fentanyl addiction. Why did you decide to write about this? Well, because I have a lot of friends who are mothers now. I've met their kids, and so I've now been in touch with the mothers. And some just don't really understand about fentanyl. Their kid might have only been on it for six months or a year, and they can't understand why they're kid doesn't respond, doesn't text them back for months at a time. It just seems like obviously there's a broader swathe of mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and people out there who just need to know exactly how potent and dangerous and terrifying fentanyl is. It's a man-made drug. It's, It's tiny quantities. It's so potent that drug dealers can just a little bit in a pill sell it on the internet to a school kid who will die within minutes because they can't deal with opioids. Their system have no tolerance for it. So it just seemed, I think honesty is important with this issue. I mean, obviously I paused on several occasions and thought, what on earth am I doing? Why am I writing about this? But Lola was completely fine with it. She's happy to talk about it. She understands that only by educating people and talking about this problem, will there be perhaps some knowledge and it might prevent some deaths? I mean, she's had so many people die now that she is genuinely now terrified and in in such a panic because everybody has to know how the cravings will stay with you for years. I mean, it's the hardest drug to get off on the planet. There's a relapse rate of about 95%. Lola knows nobody who's gotten off it. She just knows people who are dead. I've now befriended after maybe 13, 14 rehabs that Lola's been to. I now have friends who work in rehabs who just say that the number of repeat 
people if they stay alive. A friend of mine who works at a Malibu in LA said that there are so many people, they do the 30 days, they do the 60 days, either paying privately at a really fancy, lovely rehab or a, a less fancy one. And the number of fentanyl users who just immediately relapse and possibly die or are back at the rehab within a few weeks or a month is just phenomenal. It's just, it's very difficult to get off it. So that's another thing. That's why it needs to be out there. If you get onto fentanyl, the chances of surviving are not great. This is so easy for you to talk about now, but as a reader, I found it really difficult to stomach because you speak so viscerally about your experiences and about your own. Has it always been easy for you to talk about this or has it been a bit of a process? Say that after eight or nine years of this, it's become easier. No, I mean, there were times when I avoided discussing it with anyone. And I mean, to this day, I still don't really talk to too many friends about it because who wants to know? And also it's repetitive and it's tedious. And I find that by and large in this world and in America, people loathe drug addicts. They hate them. And I get it. It's a difficult disease to comprehend. I mean, I have good friends who say, oh God, Lola clearly doesn't want to get better. She doesn't want to get clean. And it's like, no, that's not the case. She does want to get clean. But if compounded, which is often the case with depression, in her case, bipolar. It's just, if you're in this much pain and the fentanyl is readily accessible, the chances are you'll slip no matter how badly you want to stay clean. So I feel like there's not a, a lot of understanding about it. No, I used to go to all my Al-Anon meetings and never say a word about any of it because it was so sort of overwhelming to even bring it up. And I wasn't really following the Al-Anon suggested ways of doing things. Let go and let God detach with love. That's just not who I am. I don't have it in my DNA to sit back and wait and hope that she will come around. I mean, I don't know if I've done the, being the perfect mother. People will call me enabling, controlling, boundaries almost non-existent. <laughs> but I feel like, I just feel like I can only go on loving her. That's all I can do. I'm trying to protect her. And yes, along the way, I got very involved with trying to find her in the middle of the night and stop her and find her friends and help them. And then they would come to me because they knew that I was sort of on their side. And I've taken a lot of her friends to rehabs, not particularly successfully because of with fentanyl, it's just really, really hard to get off. One of the things, I mean, just that's especially so poignant. And you talk about where she is now. This is not just your daughter, but a woman who is a very promising artist. She's had terrific shows. She was an apprentice to Robert Graham, the sculptor, and she has great talent. And I think that's also part of the pain that anyone reading this comes is like you see the potential of a person and then how it's just undone and undercut by this insidious drug. And I think that's, again, for any parent reading and even any friend reading it, of someone says it's part of the what's so horrifying about this drug is you see the potential. And here she is, as you know, she's struggling. She's still making art and still struggling to show art, but caught in the grips of this thing. But it's, I think, your portrait. I just want to make sure that we see her as a daughter and a woman out in the world who also has great potential as well. Yeah, no, that's the heartbreaking thing. I mean, Lola does have an enormous amount of talent she works endlessly, ceaselessly when she was on a roll and having shows and having designers use her art for fabrics, for clothes. This fabulous Australian designer did that. I mean, no, people were collecting her work. People were loving it. She was posting hundreds and thousands of likes. I mean, she was selling 
like crazy. And yeah, it's just beyond, beyond tragic. And she feels that every minute of the day. She was very affected by the fact that her dad overdosed and died. She grew up with an addict father. I mean, we split when she was two, but that was absolutely traumatizing. That hasn't helped. I believe she inherited his genes. I mean, I don't have an addictive bone in my body particularly, other than helping her. So she grew up with a dad who was in and out of rehabs, who would drive drunk, who got fired off his own TV shows. Chris created Shake It Up Chicago. He discovered Zendaya and Bella Thorne for that show. And after two years, he was fired off his own show. Who does he call, having been fired by his agents, Disney, Lola, weeping hysterically? Who would he call when he got arrested for passing out on someone's lawn? Lola. She would have to go and bail him out from jail. So she grew up terrified that her dad would die. And of course, he did overdose and die. And I was the one to go and pick up Lola and my son, Nick, who was staying with her that night, tell them that Chris had died. And we went over to the house where he was staying. He was at that point homeless a couple of years after being fired. And yeah, we had to see the body. And I think at that moment, I knew that things were not going to be easy. <laughs> I knew it was going to be a long, bumpy road. And then I'd say probably a year or two after that, possibly three, fentanyl came around. Heroin was no longer really available. And fentanyl is what everybody takes. It's certainly what she took. Linda, if you had one hope, maybe that's a hard word for you these days, but one hope for the impact this piece could make, what would that be for people who read it? Well, do I have to limit it to one? I mean, I just feel like America needs to spend a lot more time and energy and money, money, money on educating people, on housing and addiction centers. I mean, there's not nearly enough support for addicts. If you don't have decent insurance or money, you're back on the streets with your addiction. So there's no housing. If you've been arrested and you've gone to jail, you can't get a job, you can't get therapy and support. It's a whole vicious cycle. But I would just like, at schools, kids should be taught, there should be a class. People should be taught that fentanyl is the scariest drug on the planet right now. It's the worst, most dangerous drug ever invented. And you better not take any counterfeit Pills, you better not get anything on the internet. That will kill you immediately, almost certainly. There's a reason that they're thinking of putting vending machines selling Narcan, which is the thing, the antidote if there's an overdose. There's talk of it being in every chemist available. Of course it should be. I mean, America needs to sort of wake up education. And I just hope that somebody might, some parent might have a talk with their 14 year old kids, 15, and just say, this is the deal. People need to know what's going on. Well, thank you so much for the story, not only for your writing, but also for talking to us so candidly about this important topic. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, it is a wonderful issue of Airmail this week. We encourage you all to enjoy it, read it, spend time with it. Any feedback, you know where to find us. And Michael, before we go off into the weekend, do you have anything at all you can recommend? I got a few things. I got a few things. First, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm punching my ticket this weekend. I'm going to go join the many, many, many people who last weekend saw Creed 3 because I'm a big fan of the Rocky franchise and it's gotten great reviews. So count me in for that. Then I'm going to watch the Oscars because I can't help myself. And finally... Because it is Oscar weekend, Ashley, why not check out the new Chris Rock special on Netflix, Selective Outrage, in which he makes comedy out of last year's slap from Will Smith, but also has a bunch more great material. It's called Selective Outrage, and it's on Netflix. And finally, I point us all back to the issue with a reminder to read Max Carter's look in this week's issue at the art event of the season, the blockbuster Vermeer show in Amsterdam. Ashley, and you, what can you tempt us with? 
I mean, I'm happy to talk about the Vermeer show in Amsterdam. I'm extremely frustrated, Michael. I can't seem to get tickets for this thing. I mean, they're not available online. Some people say if you join the museum, you can get tickets. I haven't exactly seen how that works, but it is fascinating. Everybody in London is talking about how do you get there? Because now you can take the Eurostar from London straight-ish to Amsterdam. But I'm dying to see this show. Well, apparently I read that they've stopped selling tickets online. So overwhelming demand. So it's the hot show of the season. It's the hot show of the season. It's the hot show of the past 30 years. I mean, I don't think there have been this many Vermeer works in a room since the 90s, and everybody is talking about it. And Girl with a Pearl Earring is only in the exhibition until the 28th of March, I believe. So if you want to see that work, and many of us do, you've got to get there and get there. I'm agonizing over this, Michael. If I just disappear in the middle of the week next week, you know it's because I'm camping out in front of the museum. And before I let you go, it is Oscar weekend, as we mentioned. So let's just look at Best Picture, Ashley. Who do you want to win, and who do you bet will win? All right. So my unofficial, highly unscientific Oscar poll, I'm kind of rooting for everything everywhere all at once. Sorry. And I have a feeling that that's going to win. What do you think? The pure spectacle searcher in me wants Top Gun to win simply to see Tom Cruise get up there and perhaps give a speech. So I think just for a pure TV moment after you've been sitting there for four and a half hours, I would want that. But I kind of have a feeling... Michael, you just want him to jump on the couch. If he wins, I want someone to haul a sofa onto the stage of the Academy Awards. Please, we need a reprise. That's what I'm saying. Like, can't we all just like believe he's going to give an amazing speech? So... Why not kind of secretly root for Top Gun to win? I saw in the theater three times. What's not to love? Exactly. And remember when he comes on and he thanks you for being there? I'm like, yes, sir. Oh! I'm enrolling right now. Sign me up. Like for some reason, five years ago, I'd completely written you off as a crazy Scientologist. And yet now I love you again. I don't know how that happened, but Tom Cruise, I tip my hat to you for the incredible feat of PR. If that doesn't win, my bet would be that sort of the rising dark horse is all quiet on the Western Front. I can't see that slipping in. So we will see how our wagers play out next week. But for now, listeners, you've got our markers on the table. Well, we want to thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend and we will see you here next week for another episode of your favorite podcast, Ashley and Michael's Excellent Adventure. or otherwise known on Spotify and Apple as Morning Meeting, which is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you get your shows. But most of all, thanks again for joining us. <laughs>